Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. What the hell is technical analysis? If you ever go on crypto Twitter or hell, go anywhere where they talk about crypto, go watch Bloomberg TV, go, you know, watch anything related to the stock market or crypto or anything. You'll always see technical analysis, T-A, Bollinger Bands, all these different concepts. What the hell is that? And can technical analysis actually predict the future prices of, on today's episode, we talk to TradingView General Manager, Pierce Crosby on the magic of technical analysis, equity, ICOs, IPOs, transparency, and the future of crypto trading. We talked about exchange manipulation. Is it actually happening? TradingView has been around for before Bitcoin, and they are a company that aggregates constant data analysis charts and allows traders and different people to analyze and distribute and share their analysis on crypto, stocks, gold, all these different things. So there's this amalgamation of data that is being brought in in a real-time basis. And so there's no better person to ask about what's going on under the hood of crypto speculation and trading. TradingView's general manager, Pierce Crosby, shared with me today, you know, what inspired him to, to found the company and how it has been a super exciting journey since the inception. We talked about crypto trading starting like when real trading started happening in 2013, 2014. Um, That's kind of when trading started to take an institutional level. And we talked about that kind of uh, transition. And what I guess what was very humbling and and, and made me uh, happy was how committed they are to retail trading, you know, for, for, for you and me, not just the institutions and equality for crypto traders. Enjoy the episode, and I'll talk to you guys right after the end. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees, and I don't like that. So check it out, bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free 
card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. I'm super excited to share that we're now working with Bitpanda here at Untold Stories. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Their core product is an easy-to-use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker with over a million users. How cool is that? You can not only trade crypto like Bitcoin and Ether, but you can also trade digitized gold and around 30 other digital assets. What's amazing about Bitpanda is how easy it is to set up an account within minutes and get going with the minimum amount of just one euro. So make sure you check out Bitpanda. They are a sponsor of Untold Stories. I love them, especially if you're in Europe or anywhere in the world, bitpanda.com. Thank you so much, guys. Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo, our newest sponsor of Untold Stories. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content, and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really, really like. It's fast and simple, and it's the first crypto-powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google app stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm going to be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. Pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you are listening to Untold Stories. My guest today, we're very special to have him, Pierce Crosby. He's the general manager for the Americas for TradingView. TradingView sounds familiar to you, right? Well, before, I think it was like 2014, there was no real way to look at crypto charts. Crypto trading was still very much, um, as I said earlier, a a child's game. Uh, Pierce, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Charlie. It's really cool to be here. Uh, and you're at the the trading expo right now in Chicago, right? How how's that going? It's it's awesome. I mean, Chicago is always a great place for us to come. I mean, you know, we're actually founded in Chicago in late 2012 is when uh, uh, TradingView did TechStar Chicago, and so coming back is always a cool opportunity because uh, you get to reconnect with a lot of the traders that have been, you know, big fans of the platform since day one. Um, money shows and trader expo is always great because uh, you know, get a big mashup of all the players and, and get a sense of, you know, who's there and what's kind of latest trends. TradingView is the website that you go to, to view charts. Yeah. Um, and no matter what you trade, you trade commodities, you trade stocks, and now when you trade crypto, but if you trade anything going back years, um, 
you've heard of TradingView. So you are the, um, I'm trying to give a good comparison, but you are the Apple of the trading world, right? You're the Google of the trading world. You're, <laughs> you're the, the homepage yeah. for any, for any, any site. And so in 2014, when, um, you've integrated the Mount Gox API to be able to be able to see the charts and real time, uh, order books and be able to see the real time, um, um, you know, history of, of, of crypto trading. Mm. This was so important because before that, it wasn't really, um, at all. you couldn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't get that data anywhere. Like, mm-hmm. how do you see that fundamentally have changed crypto? Yeah. I mean, I think that they were early in understanding that, um, more transparency was necessary. And, you know, these guys have, um, built an amazing business around, you know, they started in Forex. And so they really had a keen understanding. They're actually the founders of MultiCharts, which is another kind of technical analysis trading platform. And it's built for institutional traders. And so I think that uh, when the whole crypto phenomenon started really coming around, like you said, late 2014, um, they immediately saw that there was not a lot of transparency. And so they were actively kind of searching for information, data, anything that could give, you know, the average investor a better sense of what was going on in the market. Um, And I think that, you know, Mt. Gox was probably the first um, to really have those uh, data feeds. Um, And so TradingView kind of plugged into that and they uh, basically said, hey, here's a great way to visualize all this data. Um, It's a pretty comprehensive kind of, you know, technical analysis platform already. So let's just pull in new data feeds and, you know, apply the same principles that we did for the Forex world, for the equities world, Um, just do the same thing for the crypto world. And I think that that probably was for them kind of that aha moment, because like you said, I mean, the whole crypto world, you know, was maybe investing, but through kind of non-transparent exchanges or, or, you know, to the point where they were just uh, pushing an order out and hoping to get something in return. Um, and so, yeah, that, I mean, they definitely capitalized on that. And uh, I mean, you see it today. I mean, I was actually doing a presentation yesterday and uh, you know, we talked about how there were 5 million uh, Bitcoin traders in late uh, July 2014 using the platform every month. Um, wow. Which is insane. Wow. You know, <laughs> I have to say the, the, the Bitcoin trading space has matured so much. And what I mean by that is crypto is still, it's not even a decade old. It's still in this like, um, socioeconomic experiment phase. We're still in the, in the heavy, heavy Mm -hmm. speculation phase. And, and I, as I'm telling you this, you come from like a, um, a stock trading background. So I want to get kind of your feedback on this, but yeah. what, I, what I'm trying to say is like, it's still very, 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 it, the market is not mature yet no. and it's going to be a while before it, it, it matures. Right. 100%. So how do you see, um, what are some like comparisons? I, I I'm trying to get like your, your immediate like thoughts and it's hard. I, I wonder if you remember them of like when you, when you first learned about crypto and you you looked at the crypto trading world from a mature stock market yeah. trading perspective, what were your first impressions? Yeah, I mean, um, actually, my largest concern wasn't the legitimacy of the actual companies, which was, um, I think, part of it. But 
more importantly was liquidity, right? So I think, you know, I was at StockTwits for five years. I, I joined in 2013. And, you know, I kind of had a jack of all trades role where, um, you know, I was kind of thrown into the fire and try to make a business out of, out of, um, out of a social network. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we looked at a bunch of different markets and we pulled in a bunch of different data feeds at StockTwits, um, you know, back in 2012, 2010. I mean, the platform really launched in 2029, um, or sorry, 2009. Um, but you know, I mean, coming from the equity world, um, the biggest concern I think was, you know, if you can get in, can you get out? Um, and I think that for a lot of those early exchanges, and I think Mt. Gox's case in point, like people were very concerned as to, um, you know, if you're actually going to invest in something like this, um, what's the legitimacy of that actually playing out? Um, and I think what's really interesting is to see the maturity of that over, you know, less than a couple of years, um, where, you know, some of the big guys have really come in and started to uh, build a lot of custodian uh, type businesses um, to assure that you're not going to lose your lose your portfolio or you can actually exit trades, et cetera, et cetera. And I think Coinbase um, has, you know, built a lot around um, their core product to assure customers that, you know, there's no issue of, you know, being able to um, trade or execute or anything like that. Um, but no, I mean, that was that was a huge concern for me because I think that, um, you know, we don't want to, you know, be in a place where you're exposing people to stuff that uh, you can't buy or sell um, at your own free will. And so, you know, stock twits, I think that we saw the market um, pretty early, but we were very hesitant to kind of jump in because, uh, you know, I mean, I think people were all kind of hesitant as to, you know, where does this thing really go? And I'm still hesitant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. How many years later and everybody still hasn't. Yeah, and I think your point around the speculation is um is uh is pretty compelling. I mean, it, it does remind me of, you know, the late 90s um where I mean, the pets.com example, it's it's always so case in point. It's like, you know, people thought the internet was going to be the whole world and as a result, you know, what valuation do you apply to a, uh, you know, online um, dog food selling website? Um, and so as a result, you know, pets.com is, uh, I think at its peak, it was like something like $17 billion or something like that. I might- Are we past that stage now, though? Are we past like the pets.com stage with, with crypto, you think? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, what's interesting, I was actually uh, looking this up uh, just the other day. So I gave a presentation around crypto. Um in funny enough, in in Miami uh, in January of 2018, um, it was a kind of a summit of a bunch of different uh, folks in crypto. And um, at the time, there were about 1,200 different tokens. Um, you know, That's it. That was it. That was it. <laughs> that was it. It's a, basically a year and a half ago, right? So where are we today? I just looked. It's we're at, a lot. I think it's 2,300 are listed on. Um, on uh, coin market cap and and it requires like a, a, a certain amount of like real trading volume on an exchange to actually get listed on coin market right. cap they've coin market cap have largely given up on that on the rest of the market so i mean you know if you say the total addressable market today is maybe four thousand coins maybe something plus um you know it, it's interesting right because like where is that pets.com moment for the overall crypto world right like where has the mania finally you know hit reality i think that you know probably the volatility we saw in 2017 early 2018 was representative of that kind of um that in, 
insane trading mania. But, you know, maybe the altcoin trading mania is now uh, a new resurgence in kind of that that uh, that same story. So I don't know. I mean, picking tops is not something that that I do personally. And um, I just uh, try to keep uh, uh, a grain of salt always, always kind of handy so that, you know, when people tell me about the next coin, I say, OK, well, it's interesting. I'll uh, I'll definitely put that on the back burner. But, um, you know, I, I don't feel super confident yet still in kind of, um, you know, going all out looking at these kind of new emerging markets, if you will. Uh, Talk about liquidity. Um, I work with a, a market maker and um, OTC desk based in Singapore very closely. Wow. And they sell t-shirts and they're, they're kind of like uh, funny mantra is, and it's on the t-shirts is liquidity. Isn't that great <laughs> because they, you know, if you have like a shit coin or an altcoin or anything that you want to sell other than like Bitcoin or Ethereum, yeah. Um, you have to send them the name of the coin or the token, and they'll basically look at it and um, try to trade it for you. And more or less, you're lucky sometimes if you get like seventy cents on the dollar yeah. of what the coin market cap price is. Uh, and they're like they're running there. Liquidity isn't that great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's like a complete yeah. like overstatement, yeah. <laughs> understatement. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so for sure, for the equities world, I think we've. You know, equities world has always had market makers, right? And I think that, you know, more recently, actually, if you go, if you look at the kind of uh, total addressable market today and tradable coins, um, we actually have it on trading view. We kind of like the total market cap of all tradable coins. And, um, you know, market cap hasn't resurged to those insane levels. But what you do see is that volume has resurged in, in a really significant way. Um, you know, monthly trading volume um, across the across the space um, has uh, has definitely ballooned, and so I think that's really kind of indication that a lot more of the market makers are becoming involved. Um, you know, trading you know not just big blocks but very small trades back and forth as well. And I think that maturity is is um, is really healthy um, because what you have is a bunch of different types of players, not just you know um, mental retail traders trying to like you know, go all out and, and you know, uh, trade their entire book in a single day. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, the, I think the liquidity is still just the big question for these shit coins or whatever, like the kind of edge cases. I think the parallel that I got um, actually at the conference yesterday was, um, you know, how alt is alt, right? Like, oh, like you're trading like XRP, but that's not that's a good point. Alt is alt. Like maybe, you know, the 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 real hipsters that are kind of way out there in Bushwick or whatever are talking about, you know, this next gen coin that's coming online in like Singapore and blah, blah, blah. There are some really good ideas that are going to come out of this episode. Yeah. But what I'd love to see, and I think you guys are in a position to do it. Maybe you have an OTC desk, do it too. Instead of using the term like altcoin, you have like tier liquidity uh, yeah. ratings yeah. and basically no one has done this yet. So someone listening to the show is going to do this and I have to make sure I do it before Anybody I release else, this but, show. Yeah, yeah. But essentially, like you said, like altcoin, right? So you have <clears throat> you have uh, so the, the, the term altcoin kind of came very early on as alternative to Bitcoin. Right. Um, and that wasn't a positive or a negative. It just is mm-hmm. right. Alternative to Bitcoin. It was Bitcoin Fearless. and there was right everything else um but i think that term is is outdated mm-hmm. and i think what you should see is like 
Bitcoin. So you have liquidity terms, and this is nothing to say about the project themselves. You can have a complete scam shitcoin, yeah. but if they trade, if it has like unbelievable liquidity, if there's someone out there buying up every order and order books are super thick, right. then it'll be like an A, B, or C. Right. So it had no bearing, and that would be a really cool idea. Is that is that is that yeah, I mean, you know able to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that even even on TradingView, you could start doing uh, sort functions based on daily volume, right? So you could get kind of a top list and a bottom list of uh, liquidity um, in terms of the cryptos that we list um, on TradingView. That said, we're already kind of making a first case on that where we don't list all coins because you know, a lot of them really do not have the liquidity that I think that is required to even be tradable, um, you know, square one. But I think that it'd be it'd be great if somebody could create kind of a, a ratings list. Um, you know, in the equities world, I'd, I'd say the parallel would be Morningstar, right? So Morningstar has a bunch of kind of um, standardizations and ratings um, around not just liquidity, but um, kind of the underlying principles of things like uh, mutual funds, um, ETFs, etc., um, they, they've really kind of been the, the stalwart in, um, in providing these, uh, these standardizations and kind of recommendations in terms of, you know, if you're, if you're a retail investor and you're trying to get started, um, there are mutual funds that are just not healthy for you. Um, you know, if you're a trader and you want to trade, you know, intraday triple leveraged ETFs, like that's fine, but the, those two should never overlap in terms of um, in terms of a uh, investment. And so, for the crypto okay, world, it point. could yeah. be it could be really interesting if um, if there was some kind of you know uh, barometer for you know is this a healthy investment for you as an individual investor versus you as a you know day trader versus you as a long term you know uh, holder hodler how do you even say that hodler hodler hodler, but, <laughs> but, uh, hodler you know or holder but it's just spelled differently that that story came from during the first bitcoin uh like one of the first bubbles i think price was going it was going from um um it would i remember it was going from like 50 dollars to 264 was it the, the the local high at the time and then it was dumping all the way back down to like a hundred dollars mm. and it was a post on one of, on bitcoin forums on the bitcoin talk forums and um this guy wrote this like paragraph in all caps lock he was like a new account yep. he wrote an all caps lock and he mis he misspelled every word oh, yeah um, and he also misspelled the word hold. And he basically, he was like, <clears throat> Bitcoin price is dumping. My girlfriend's leaving me. Um, she's out with another guy. Um, I'm losing all my money and, but I'm hold I'm holding. And I know I just spelled that wrong. Fuck. I don't care, but I'm still holding. And it was like, if all out, you know, everything is going oh, to shit, but this guy is, and that it became that, like, that's where it came from. It's like, hold you know, the whole world is falling apart around you, but, uh, listen, this is going to be, this is going to be the future. So, yeah. And, yeah. and if it's symbolic, because if he had held, we never heard from him again, oh, he'd be a multi multi-millionaire, you know, that's the next guy you need to get on this podcast, right? Where is yeah. that guy today? You know, the original people have tried. Um, I, I, I'll reach out to him again. I know how to contact him, but I do need to have him on the show. Yeah. I have a lot of like quirky people on the show who did some crazy things in the early days, yeah. but, um, that's a great. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a piece of history, right? Like in a lot of ways, you know, memes of the internet. I think, uh, there's a great, there's a great podcast that specializes in memes called reply all. Um, it's done by the, the guys that also, I think did, um, I can't, I would say Gimlet media, but anyways, um, yeah, they kind of track down folks who became memes 
um, like not even of their willing or choice, but, you know, just like that random guy that all of a sudden is like trapped in a meme. And uh, it's amazing. I mean, it, sometimes it they become like celebs and then, you know, other times they're just completely anonymous. But it's funny. I want to talk about uh, fake volume. There was a report recently that came out that said that 70% of crypto volume is fake. I want to hear your thoughts about that. Um, I want to hear your thoughts about if you're a retail investor, because um, that's my listeners are very much retail investors yeah. or, or traders of, of crypto. How does one tell if volume is fake? Are there are there basic things someone can do when they're looking at um, the order books of, of a token or coin? Um, they're looking at the trading view charts, um, the trading history. Is there a way they can tell on if the volume is fake and what that actually means? Yeah. I mean, volume studies are super interesting and um, I'm not super in depth in terms of, you know, the tools that, that we even have at TradingView. And the reason I say that is, I mean, I joined four months ago as the GM and obviously scaling up my, my knowledge of the team and stuff. And pretty much every day I'm surprised at the depth and complexity of tools that we have for different types of studies. For, for volume itself, um, you know, from the equities world, I would always look at volume based on trading over the course of a given day. Um, as an indication of the health um, of a security or not. So for the equities world, um, the majority, probably 90%, if not more, of trading happens um, 10 minutes after the market open and then 10 minutes before the market close. So the majority of the day, you actually don't see any trading volume. And what that really means is um, the majority of trading today in the equities world is automated. Um, It's really just bots kind of passing orders back and forth. And in the equities world, that's created a, a bunch of kind of concern about, you know, the legitimacy of liquidity, right? Um, I would say the same is probably the case in the equity world or in the, in the crypto world, um, where the order book actually falls and, you know, how much of the trading is being done um, by an automated system um, versus these large block traders versus, you know, the retail trader. And so looking at volume studies over the course of a day versus week versus month, to kind of um, check on seasonality or uh, whether or not there is consistent buying activity from um, small parties versus large parties. Um, I think those are all ways to get started. I, I would be very concerned if you do see the same profile as the equity world where the majority of trading, well, I guess it never opens and closes actually. So you couldn't really track that. Um, there is no closing. Yeah, right, right. So it's, it's similar to the, to the, to the, F- what is, what does that like mean fake volume? I mean, fake volume is, um, well, in the equities world, spoofing, really. Um, And there's, you know, obviously, Michael Lewis wrote um, a pretty great book about it. But um, yeah, so more or less, it's orders back and forth um, between counterparties that are very, I guess, aware as to what they're receiving and taking. Um, And spoofing actually is, uh, they send orders to the exchange. But then before they actually reach the exchange, they cancel the order. Um, what that does is it, it creates a uh, appearance as there's a bunch of orders coming into the actual exchange. But at the end of the day, that that order is never executed. And so um, so face value, it looks like there's a ton of volume coming in. Um, but then if somebody actually enters that market, the volume kind of evaporates or dries up. Um, and so in the crypto world, what you could probably see is... Um, a bunch of orders that look like they're orders on paper, but it's probably being traded back and forth with two parties. 
Um, so with the same person, yeah, either the same person or a couple of firms that are more or less making. And there's no way for you to get in between that if you're trying to buy or sell the asset. Well, for the most part, no. And um, I don't think that. I mean, I think there's probably some exchanges that have different levels of um, order depth that you could you could look at, but I'm not sure. I mean, in the in the equities world, there's no way to get between it. Um, you know, you basically just watch as it goes. What about trading fees? Wouldn't that be expensive to keep trading between two accounts? Uh, depends. Depends the provider. I mean, if there are two HFT firms here in Chicago, uh, I, I would say the cost is probably zero, um, if not close to it. Well, in in crypto, you have you have a, a maker and taker fees. You have to you have to pay to actually trade. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, two accounts that were trading between each other would have to keep incurring these trading fees and it would become expensive. So there the two responses to that is a one, they don't care. Mm. It's the cost of doing business. Mm. And two, you have a lot of these, especially Asian exchanges that simply charge like a $10 a month unlimited trading. Mm-hmm. And that really pushes for spoofing. So, I mean, how do you, how do you stop that? How, how is that, you know, policed in the equities world and how do you stop that? Because that really does turn, it, it, it makes us look bad, right? It makes crypto trading look bad and it hurts a lot of people. And if we don't, if we don't start start to self regulating, which we are, then we're going to be regulated. And this is a big problem that crypto people really don't understand: is that um, it's not that regulation is bad necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's when you have bad regulation, mm-hmm. and the only really way to get bad regul prevent bad regulation is by self regulating. Totally. And there are a lot of really successful stories of self-regulating regulating bodies like FINRA, right? FINRA started as like a self-regulating body yeah. in the stock world before they were actually, uh, I, I don't know, like taken over by the government. How, how did that happen? Um, yeah, I mean, there was an independent entity that basically spun up, um, you know, covering all the banks and, and different kind of licensed brokers. And, um, you know, they they realized early on that there was kind of a need to have standards in place because... If you're an un- unregulated broker dealer, um, you know the world's your oyster in a way. Um, but obviously, you can do super nefarious things, and nobody nobody says anything. Um, so yeah, I mean that that kind of standard and policy, I think, is the reason the equity world is um, is as broad and as as kind of uh, valuable as it is today. I mean, you know, comparatively, if you go to um, I was just talking to a couple guys. Um, who um, run a broker dealer over in India and they do a lot of self-policing um, internally, but there are nowhere near the same controls that we have here in the U S um, and as a result, you know, you have a much thinner market because um, nobody really trusts a lot of what um, happens day to day in some of those markets that don't have any standards in place. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that there's a huge need for having central bodies in every market um, that operate, you know, either independently or through a consortium. I mean, a lot of the exchanges have created um, consortiums um, in the equity world that they've been. Unfortunately, there's kind of this head to head battle with um, with exchange kind of uh, uh, collectives versus the SEC now. And a lot of that has to do with these maker taker rules that have existed for a long time and, and, and all this stuff. But um, but, you know, that's the thing is uh, the SEC or, or whatever regulator is always playing catch up. And so um, it's is spoofing illegal in, in the equities world. Um, the the formal definition of spoofing is um, is illegal. Yes. 
That's my next question is what is the definition of spoofing? It sounds like such a crypto word, but it's not. It's a it's it's an existing word, right? Yeah, yeah, no no, it's 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 very much an existing word. It's um it's more or less fake orders as as we talked about. So, um you know, somebody can send in uh, what looks like a very large order and then before it actually gets to the exchange, it's canceled and so um it's recorded as an order but um it never actually executes. So, kind of these ghost trades or kind of this uh, ephemeral uh, experience, but there, there is really no liquidity there. Um, and so if somebody sees a bunch of liquidity on a given exchange, you know, say I'm a fidelity and I really need to commit a $50 million trade on Apple. Um, well, if I'm looking at Apple's order book today, it looks like it's super liquid. Um, but what percentage of those trades actually get executed versus what are sent to the exchange um, in general um, can be two very different numbers. And so, but if it's if it's if it's in the order book, couldn't you theoretically just buy it? That's how it works on the crypto exchanges. Yeah, right. But so the, those are listed orders, and if I Fidelity send in my order, those orders can be canceled um, before my order gets to the exchange. Oh, so as a result, um, I've sent in a fifty million dollar order, and then all of a sudden, what looked like a very deep book um, just disappears right in front of me, and that's the whole uh, debate about high frequency. Is that um, you know before my order can even get to the exchange, um, a high frequency firm has identified that Fidelity is sending in a massive order, and as a result, um, they cancel all of their orders before Fidelity's order actually. Uh, it it seems like in that world, right, in the example that you just gave, the the motive for wanting to spoof would be to like um, – It's phishing, really. It's phishing. Yep. And I think the motive in crypto is different. Um, there was a report that for 15 – there was a, an article that came out last week that on Coindesk that for $15,000, um, there's this company in China – or no, sorry, there's this company in Russia – That'll charge you $15,000 to fake your exchange volume. And the motive for that is because if you have high trading volume, um, you attract more people for trading your coin or token. And then you could eventually like exit scam on them or sell or buy or do do something you want. Um, So the motive is different. The motive is to create fake volume Mm -hmm. um, to show that you actually have uh, a deep order book buying and selling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think that it, in, in some ways, it looks good for the exchange um, in both cases. But um, yeah, I guess the the big issue that a bunch of um, large asset managers are, you know, kind of really fighting against is, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, I, you know, need to move a large block of, of cash. And if what you're presenting to me as an exchange is um, is not really reflective of the liquidity that's actually there, you know, what service does an exchange really provide? And so, um, yeah, I think, I think in both cases, you know, the exchanges need to be policing these things way more. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, how that's done. Why would they want to? They make, they're making trading fees. They're making money. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, I guess it's the thing is like for them, it's, it, it is, it is definitely, it is definitely a cash business, but if you're thinking about it from a, you know, client, uh, I guess, service provider perspective, you know, clients are going to continue to be angrier and angrier if they're not getting the best, best bid, best ask um, when they're coming to the market. And uh, I think over time, it that's a natural symptom of, you know, I mean, that's why 
the IEXs of the world have kind of uh, come into fruition because people are so angry with the traditional equities exchanges. Um, and so as a result, I mean, I, I, I assume it's going to be the exact same for, for the crypto world. Like, um, you know, I, I know that Gemini is a very large exchange. Um, I assume they're building policing policies for kind of, um, you know. Gemini is, is definitely leading the charge yeah. um, as building this uh, SRO and also the self-regulatory organization, but also trying to be the, the shining city on the hill. I know Cameron and Tyler for a very, very long time. Yeah. And I remember when they first invested in BitInstant and I was a kid, I was like 20 years old yeah. when they first got into crypto. Um, I remember them telling me, um, you need to make sure that you're the shining city on the hill. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's kind of their, and for, be- for better or for worse, I think for better, it'll be um, good for the crypto <clears throat> Uh, space in general mm-hmm. um and i think long term it'll it'll help there gemini is probably like the big boys in the room as it comes to to exchanges yeah. um it may not have the best liquidity it may not be the one that's like the easiest to use well it's getting better but in terms of like what regulators are wanting to see mm-hmm. gemini is is it yeah yeah and you know that's it's a really great story i think that um uh, interestingly enough, too, is, you know, we want to be working with partners like that. So, you know, from TradingView's perspective, you know, when we think about the whole crypto world, um, you know, we pull in data feeds from pretty much every exchange and every broker. Um, but in terms of, you know, going any farther or doing any kind of custom integrations, um, you know, we look for standards. Um, and in a world that is pretty non-transparent, I think that Gemini's has done a, an amazing job in kind of establishing those. Like you said, I mean, they don't have nearly the liquidity as some of these um, some of these exchanges. But but that's the thing is that you might not get the liquidity that a completely unregulated exchange is going to get. Sure, um, and that that tells you a very interesting story too. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees. And I don't like that. So check it out. Bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free 
card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. And thanks for listening to Untold Stories. All right, so I hope you didn't skip my ad because in the early part of the episode, we talked about how Bitpanda is working with us here at Untold Stories. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? I'll tell you why, so don't skip. Basically, what they're doing is to apply the same tech you're used to from Bitcoin to other digital assets. So, for example, you trade real precious metals like gold and silver on their platform 24-7 with ultra-low fees. And what's really cool is that you can trade gold and silver and these other precious metals with other assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptos that they support. So in a nutshell, Bitpanda is advocating the tokenization topic. So they want to bring financial products like stocks, ETFs, and more to everybody who uses their platform anywhere in the world. So check them out, bitpanda.com. Support my sponsors. Have a great day. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements, like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. And so up until now, like, the current crypto exchanges largely fit into a framework of what you guys 
are doing, you know, before you integrated with crypto, right? It was simple as putting in an API, but now you have like decentralized exchanges and they're not there yet. Like they're not, they're definitely getting volume and they're somewhat easy to use. They're still somewhat complicated. Um, We had a a trader work, work for us, um, one of our partners, and he, he's pretty good with computers. You know, he comes from the, he, he actually owned a company that was eventually sold to E-Trade like 30 years ago. So, I mean, that's the kind of trading that he was doing. And he figured out how to use a, a, a decentralized exchange. Um, it took a while, but he figured it out. So it's still somewhat complicated, but it's, it's going to get easier. Um, how do you see decentralized exchanges fitting in to, into your purview? I mean, do you, how do you, see, do you see people like trading on them? Do you see them eventually becoming the norm yeah, I mean, I, I, there are there like a couple examples you can give. I mean, I'm I'm actually not familiar as I should be with kind of the decentralized world versus the centralized world. I mean, so you have the the centralized exchanges like the ones we talked about, like Bitstamp, Gemini, yeah. um, Bitfinex, and they all basically maintain um, the database. They maintain in real time the the ledger. They hold custody of your coins yeah. while you're selling them, so they're so they're custodializing. Um, and we've seen so many exchanges exit scam, but then you have ones like Gemini that basically have a trust and it's insured. So that's really good. But <clears throat> essentially the idea behind decentralized exchanges is it's basically software kind of similar to the way like BitTorrent would work mm-hmm. that you're custodializing your own coins. The other person, the other side is still custodializing his coins, but you're able to put order, you know, orders in and there's an order book. And then when an order is done, it's happening and it's still happening in real time, but it's not being custodialized by a, a centralized body. So there's like a lot of uh, legal ramifications of that because there's no like main exchange to go after. Like there's no main exchange to do KYC and to do and to follow regulations. But also it's a good thing that there's no one to hack at the same time. There's no centralized um safe deposit box of coins that a hacker would want to go hack. Yeah. They can't like come after you and, uh, you know, break down your door or whatever. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you've ever been to like the New York stock exchange, I mean, they are, they are, you know, bulletproof bomb proof. They've, you know, built a whole kind of, uh, infrastructure around them to assure that they're never in a place where they might be exposed to, um, third parties or, you know, kind of rogue elements or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the big thing with something like that as a uh, decentralized exchange is how much trust can you put in um, in a decentralized? I mean, I guess that you know the trust is in the actual players of the of the exchange. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, when it comes to dealing with large trading firms, they like having not just a counterparty but also a neutral third party that they can you know, discuss, um, you know, trading activity, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I guess we would have to kind of wait and see in terms of, you know, are people getting best execution? Um, is there enough liquidity in decentralized exchanges to actually legitimize them? Um, and at what point, you know, how many exchanges can you really have? I mean, you know, in the equity world, which is really what I know the best, um, you know, consolidation is the name of the game, right? I mean, as soon as, as soon as the technology exists, it's all about, you know, lumping together pools and pools of uh, liquidity. And so if there are new central decentralized exchanges, 
now coming to the foreground um, in combination with the centralized exchanges, it just raises a question as to, you know, are we really overdoing it versus, you know, what kind of utility purpose does an exchange uh, service for us um, in general? And so the more and more you fracture um, and, and kind of fractionalize and, um, you know, create uh, further and further pools, you know, further and further out so that, you know, if you go down to, I don't know, Peru, there's like Peru's decentralizing. Like, is that really helping anybody, I guess, versus, um, you know, can we all kind of like move them into uh, one central repository where all liquidity exists? And then um, that there are some ideas that basically do that. There are some ideas of people and there's another second good idea because I haven't seen it yet. But the idea is to basically have a um, some sort of like exchange or software or something uh, in an interface that allows you to place orders um, like whether it's like a, an instant order or, or put put a trade in in the order books um, and it goes across all the liquidity. So basically an exchange that takes in the liquidity from all the exchanges in real time. Um, and allows you to access the liquidity. So, for example, let's just say you... <laughs> what? An exchange of exchanges. Yeah, well, so basically, like, to, to, to explain it, it's like, let's just say, you know, for, for basic, there's there are two exchanges that exist. One exchange has 10 coins for sale, mm-hmm. and the other exchange has 10 coins for sale, and the price tiers, and you have five. So instead of selling five on one of the exchanges, you could basically sell two and a half on one and two and a half on the other. So you don't push the price as much. And also you get the better price because the prices were tiered. Yep. But instead of having to create two different exchange accounts, you could do it on this one exchange. To do that, it, it would require a lot of work because you'd have to have either you have your own accounts at all these exchanges or you have some company trading on your behalf. And I don't know how that would work regulatorily. Like, is that even a word regulatorily? Like, regulatorily. The, um, Regul- yeah. Regulatorily. Uh, <laughs> I, don't no, know. No. I don't even know if that's a real word. Um, I'll shout out to, um, we actually just met with them uh, about two weeks ago. Tagomi, have you heard of Tagomi? Um, I've heard of these guys. Yeah. yeah. So I was really impressed just demoing their product and, um, their special sauce. So a lot of them are eight X HFT guys, you know, they know the high frequency world really well. Um, And, you know, as the high frequency world knows, it doesn't matter what exchange you're looking at. You're just trying to get best ask. Right. So, um, you know, if it's from the NYSE or it's from the London stock exchange or the Deutsche Börse or anything like that, um, you know, best order is best order. So they, they look cross asset and cross exchange. Um, and so when they founded Tagomi, I think they had the same thesis in mind where, you know, they don't want to work with a, with one given exchange in the crypto world. They want to work with as many as they possibly can, and then ultimately provide that as a service to the customer, right? So that it doesn't matter if, you know, if Bitfinex or, or Gemini, um, you know, whoever serves you the best price is where they'll execute. And so, their, their specialty is execution, and um, they've created a bunch of interesting algos that basically go after, um, you know, easy pools of liquidity uh, versus, you know, going after a single exchange. And so, I mean, I think that the more um, you can move in that direction is going to be really interesting. The question being is, you know, ultimately, uh, if they're going to be the custodian as well, um, they're going to build a very large pool of of, um, of cash themselves. So, you know, 
would yeah. they, you know, should they be self executing or self clearing versus um, going to a third party? And, you know, where do they draw the line in terms of um, what level of service do they, do they kind of take on themselves? But, um, but I think that they, you know, they need the exchanges and they need to work with them in order to actually um, service their clients. So, but it's an interesting kind of unique case where they're not an exchange, um, but they are kind of providing that that interesting conduit between um, between exchanges and between brokers versus uh, you know going direct to one provider. Um, so I, I was really impressed with the team. I mean, they are they are rock stars in the HFT world, and now kind of sinking their teeth into this, I think, is um, is quite an interesting problem um, to be solving for. Will will Bitcoin volatility go down or go away over time or crypto volatility in general? Oh man. I mean, I, you know what? I mean, to be honest, uh, who, who really knows, but I think that, you know, at trading view volatility is, is good. Is your friend. Yeah. <laughs> that's, your, right. that's your business. I mean, that's the thing, you know, like, uh, you know, we're a technical platform. We're rolling out a lot more fundamentals in the near future actually. But, um, you know, currently we're a technical platform and for the most part, um, folks that are, you know, trading on technicals um, are very interested in volatility because uh, it has a lot to do with kind of, you know, where you see momentum come into play and a lot of these um, kind of other strategies. And so, volatility is good. Um, should it go away? I mean, if you want mass adoption, I think it really should. Um, yeah, because that's what people complain about. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I mean, in the equity world, right? Like Apple moves maybe a half a percent a day, and people are like, "Well, that's crazy." Like, you know, in the crypto world, you you get past, say, the top 10 and moving a half a percent of the day. um, It's unusual, right? Usually we're moving in a, you know, three to eight percent range um, every single day. And so it's quite hard for for folks to kind of um, be in that longer term and really stomach that um, when, you know, you're you're looking at a 20 percent drop off in a couple of weeks. versus, you know, a 3% move. So, um, no, I mean, I, I think as markets mature, and like I said, as this this volume, this recent volume that, I, that we've been looking at, the trading view is, um, is pretty interesting. And I think that that's kind of uh, a sign of maturity. Uh, however, is that a sign of volatility actually um, dropping off? I, I don't, I don't think it is. And, uh, you know, I mean, when big announcements like the whole Facebook thing come out too, I think that that creates a lot of, um, a lot of interest in in different sectors of the market that previously had no exposure to crypto, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be vol- it's going to be volatile for a long time. I think I don't think it's going to. Okay, I well, you you mentioned something that people love to hate or hate to love. <laughs> TA technical and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> why are you laughing? No, no, no. I mean, it's you know, it's so true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. t- so so let. let TA is like either it's super science and it's you love it mm-hmm. or it's completely magic hocus pocus. Yeah. Um, some people believe that it's a great way to trade. Some people believe that you cr- you draw all your lines and all your lines, you know, make you believe what you want to believe. And some people believe that, yeah, TA is great when you're looking at the past trading, but it's not really good for the yeah. future. What's your take on TA and how can you use technical analysis to your advantage when trading crypto or even equities? Yeah. yeah. So the equity world example um, 
is um, is really interesting per market. So I'll start off by just kind of detailing, you know, technical analysis is a way to just, you know, kind of trade levels and look at charts in a way that you can see patterns in things like volume or things like candles that uh, indicate um, kind of some pattern recognition that ideally on a forward basis would actually be um, somewhat predictive of price. And, you know, it's purely a trading strategy. I mean, nobody that I know that actually invests really looks at technical analysis. It's more for those who are, you know, trying to be more active in the market and, uh, and look at this from, you know, different support levels, different um, price levels, different volume levels, et cetera. Um, technical analysis really does go to some extreme lengths in some degree. Um, you know, I generally am a big supporter of things like moving averages because, you know, when, when stocks really do break for the upside or the downside in a significant way, people take notice and there is a behavioral psychology element that just comes into play. However, um, there are also folks that are deep in things like, um, I don't know if you've seen like GAN analysis or um, some of these Elliott Wave tools. I personally, when I see this stuff, my, my eyes glaze over. I have no idea what I'm looking at. You know, there's 7,000 lines like pointing in all directions. What about Bollinger Benz? And be careful what you say because he listens to the no, show. No, that's awesome. No, no, I mean, you know, he's probably- <laughs> he frequents the money show a lot. He may be there right now yeah, in yeah, Chicago. He, he may very well be. There was there's some big personalities at Money Show actually. So um, no, I I'm a big supporter of Bollinger. I mean, he's he's actually probably one of the godfathers of technical analysis. I mean, he yeah, is. I mean, he's he's one of the old school. So, but I, one thing that I think is super important, and you know, a great kind of uh, piece of information for for folks that are in the crypto world is, um, you know, technical analysis really um, harks back to understanding behavioral psychology and the psychology of markets. And, you know, why it's not really, I guess, a science, um, especially in the equity world, is that the majority of investors, um, you know, are big institutional investors in the equity world, uh, in the U.S. at least, right? So two thirds of the U.S. equity market is institutional. Um, meaning this is institutional liquidity and folks are, you know, buying for the longer term. They're not, they're not kind of buying, um, you know, they're not trading intraday. I mean, a lot of them are, but they're doing it from a perspective of a fundamental investor, not from a technical investor. Competitively or comparatively, um, you know, if you go to the Hong Kong equity market, two thirds of that market is retail, right? So the psychology there is completely flipped. And um, so the average market participant is a retail trader. And as a result, um, they move, retail traders move the majority of the market. Um, So I think it's really interesting to compare to the crypto world because what percentage of a given asset is traded by institutions versus traded by uh, the individual or the retail? Is there a way to tell? Well, I mean, I think that you got to look at the volume profile. You know, if it's if it's a bunch of gigantic block trades um, in a given, huh. given, given security, then that would indicate that you know somebody on the institutional side is is moving around a lot of a lot of cash. But um, what's interesting is that a lot of these institutional guys are getting smarter about being noticed in this and then breaking up their orders over the course of a day or you know over ten exchanges like we were talking about, and so it's much harder to detect than it than it used to be. But but um, no, generally speaking, you know, 
the SEC actually does kind of in-depth analysis as to who the market participants are in given securities. And so as a result, we know um, kind of from a neutral third party, this regulator, that um, this is the volume profile. These are the actual players um, in the U.S. Interesting. And so in the crypto world, I don't know if that exists. And, and to be honest, if it doesn't, it should, because um, that could give you a great indication as to the health of the market, but also to the value of uh, technical analysis. Because once you have that 51% majority who believe in kind of the behavioral psychology of the market, then technical analysis becomes more and more influential. Um, the bigger and bigger the institutions that are involved, um, you know, that aren't trading based on technicals, you know, then it's less influential. But if 99% of a crypto market believes in technical analysis, um, then it's true. Then it, it's self-reinforcing. Um, and so that's kind of the bizarre, like, you know, is it, is it, does it work? Does it not work? It really depends on who's actually in the market. I want to ask you a question that may, you know, and because I, I don't, I have my own answer, but I don't know um, if I'm right. Well, it happens with most things, I think. <laughs> but um, ICO versus IPO. So the, the term ICO is largely being like moved out because it's gotten dirty and you have like the IEO, the initial exchange offering. But I want to I want to have a different take on it from your perspective. Right. So um, I tried many years ago, I tried participating in an IPO. I forget which one it was. I felt, and this was years before the ICO even existed. This is before this is before 2014, before even Ethereum existed. I felt that the IPO process was largely unfair. Um, you had these large institutions, you had the underwriting banks, and the investment banks would get the best deal, the best discounts, and then they're basically reselling it to someone who's then reselling it to someone else who's then eventually reselling it to me, the retail investor. Yeah. So I'm getting the worst deal. But it's my money that's actually like basically underwriting the whole mm -hmm. deal. And I felt this was unfair, not transparent, but it's kosher. I mean, it's, it's allowed by the SEC. It's that's the way it's yep. done. And then you have the, like, the ICO process and the ICO process, I felt was there were a lot of scams and a lot of frauds and everything. But the trading was a lot more transparent and anyone can get in. Right. Mm -hmm. Um Yes, there were discounts that were to be had, but anyone could get them if you emailed the company. Um, if you want to get a SAFT, you know, and why why is this allowed in the equities world, but it's not allowed in the in the ICO world? I mean, and am I wrong about how IPOs are done? Can can someone participate in an IPO at the same deal that um, Goldman Sachs would get for for an IPO? No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. Um... I, I'm a, yeah, I'm a big believer in, you know, if, if I believe in a company and it's going to go to IPO, I should have the equal rights to be involved in that process as the next guy, right? Um, the problem with the equity world is that it's very much based on how many degrees of separation are you from that? And, uh, you know, as a result, you are last in line in a lot of cases for these, for these deals. And, um, that's really just been the way it is historically. Um, and you got to think about where we were pre, you know, pre internet and kind of um, pre kind of distributed information where, you know, an IPO, um, say in New York in the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, you know, it was really a information based game. You know, you were in lower Manhattan and somebody said that they were going to bring a company to market and they're out in the street basically, you know, hawking this thing, 
to all these local bankers. Um, and that was like the initial process to build up interest around a company. And then, you know, the turn of the century, there's a big thing that kind of, well, not turn of the century, but um, early 20s, 30s, you know, green mail was kind of uh, these flyers that they would send out um, to, you know, a bunch of different brokers all over the U.S. to kind of have them do some initial road showing of, of IPOs and, um, you know, to build up interest with their clients. And so you could build new pools of liquidity distributed across the U.S., not just in New York. Um, you know, fast forward to today, you know, companies have roadshows before they go public. But, you know, who ultimately owns the keys to those roadshows? It's the banks that underwrite the actual um, roadshow and, and, you know, take a company to market. Um, so they still have the keys. And as a result, you can't go, you know, direct to the company, right? You can't just sit, walk up to, you know, GM and say, hey, I want to participate in this new um, uh, company that you guys are launching or what have you and, and going public. It just doesn't work like that. So to compare, you know, I mean, when the internet came along and obviously everybody can get involved day one, I think it's a, it's a great opportunity. Uh, however, you know, one, one role, I guess, that the banks still play is, you know, legitimizing this company and really having a solid understanding of financials and all this stuff versus, you know, if you're going for an initial exchange offering or, or whatever this is online, you know, what level of transparency do you really have um, there before you just throw them a, you know, $50,000 check and, you know, kind of hold your nose and, and hope for the best? Um, you know, I think it, there's definitely a, an upside to that and, and a downside. Sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, no, it, it, it really, if, if you were to relaunch the I, IPO process um, today versus where it was, I'm sure there'd be a direct-to-consumer component. Um, it's really just the historical, um, legacy of what an IPO was, you know, back in the day that has made it, um, very much a inside, inside baseball game. Like you have to have connections to certain banks in order to actually get that level. That exclusivity like gives it a, an air of, you know, being mysterious that people are attracted to. Yeah. 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 And you no, know, and you have to know somebody to get it. I mean, that's the thing. It's it, it, it's not something you can just walk up to Goldman and say, "Hey, I know you guys are running the the Slack IPO. Um, give me a chunk." And they're going to be, like, "Who the fuck are you?" I mean, they've no no interest in <laughs> that liquidity. Um, yeah. So you're at Money Show right now. Um, I want to end off with this and Money Show. For those who don't know, Money Show, and I they're not my sponsors, but my my good my good friends Kim Githler and and Jordan Berger. They they basically run that yeah. thing since. I don't know, 20 years or so um, based here in Sarasota, Florida, which is really cool where I live. Um, and that show has largely been around for, for decades and they do nine or 10 conferences a year. And basically um, it's an equity show. It's a stock. It's, you know, you have famous uh, advertisers there. You guys are there. You have TD Ameritrade, you have uh, tasty trade, you have um, Merrill Lynch, you have all, all the big boys are there. Um, but now like, I, as about a year or two ago, the crypto world is like slowly creeping into the money yeah. show. Um, you're at the Chicago show right now. Mm -hmm. What type of crypto stuff do you see? How is the mesh with the traditional uh, equities world? How is that working? Like what, you know, give me like a on the ground perspective yeah, yeah, yeah. right now. It's on the ground. What's the front <laughs> lines? Um, you know, I'd say the variation of attendees is um, on the crypto side is really interesting. We have seen um, a couple of broker dealers, um, but there's a bunch of folks that 
are also kind of playing this roadshow perspective. Like um, I watched a presentation yesterday from a guy who um, basically is, you know, saying uh, I have, you know, unique access to, um, you know, kind of new coins that are coming up. And as a result, I can get you in, but, uh, you know, it requires you to commit, I think his minimum was 50K. And um, my my eyes like shot out of my head. I was like, wait a second, like this is where we are in the market. Um, I would say that the folks that are even um, coming to the expo on the crypto side um, is a little bit of everything. Um, we have a couple established players, but compared to the equities world, it's um, it is really wild westy. I mean, like, you know, it's very it's very much like early days in terms of who are the consistent established players that are always at these traders expos. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess that's probably a symptom of, you know, they haven't had longstanding relationships with the actual conference. I mean, money show and traders expo has been around for a long time. So they have very established relationships with the likes of TD and tasty and, you know, CME group who I'm a huge fan of here in Chicago. Um, you know, they're, uh, they're always at these shows as well. And, um, and they are the best players. I mean, those are the guys that have been in the game for so long that people know they are the winner. Um, versus the crypto world, people's not, I mean, people just aren't sure like who's going to be the de facto broker dealer for crypto or, you know, who are the top 10 um, trading and technology firms for crypto. You know, they asked us to speak because we're probably one of the largest sites for, you know, crypto traffic. Um, but, you know, I'm bumping into guys who are just launching their crypto business. A lot of different data providers. Um, we've seen a lot of different crypto data providers, which is interesting. Um, but uh, but it is it is Wild West. I mean, it's um, I hope that, you know, next year uh, when we come back, uh, we'll we'll kind of see this maturity, much like you might have seen in the um, in the equities world. But uh, it's still the Wild West, man. It's um, it's really interesting to compare. Uh, so yeah, fingers crossed. But I mean, we're we're here because um, you know retail trading is is our bread and butter, and we have a bunch of institutional guys kind of um, joining the platform more recently. But you know we we always want to give back to um, to the retail investor, the individual investor, um, whether they're in crypto equities, etc. So it's a great opportunity to kind of reconnect with a lot of the folks that um, that are on our platform every day, anyways. Pierce Crosby, General Manager for the Americas of TradingView.com. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And everyone can check you out at TradingView.com and your social channels and everything will be in the show notes. Thank you so much and enjoy Chicago. Charlie, thanks a lot. And um, thanks for listening, everybody. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on UntoldStories.com. Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offord. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Schrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers, and information is power.